Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers Multiple in a highly liquid, tax-efficient and capital-efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. I'm ready. Great. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is Ian Castle of the Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management, founder of the MicroCap Club, the maestro of micro himself. I can't wait to dive into his strategy. We're going to be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing great, Toby. Thanks for having me on. My absolute pleasure. So I've, I've heard you give your background story before and it's absolutely fascinating. So how did you come to be a microcap investor? Well, we could probably talk about that for an hour, but I'll try to give the short version. Um, I started investing when I was a junior in high school and my parents sat me down and they told me, you know, they had saved for me approximately $20,000 for my college education. And they said they wanted me to know that then because that's all I was getting. And they wanted to let me know that then so I would know where to apply. You know, I could go to an expensive university or I could go to a local university. And so this was 1997. So the technology bubble was just occurring. I was getting more interested into the markets. Um, when they gave me that little bit of money, they introduced me to their financial advisor. And he introduced me to a couple small cap technology names. Um, and I just fell in love with the marketplace, just like a lot of other people did at that point in time. I decided to take that money and invest it into small cap technology companies and then just go to a local university um, so I could just kind of pay for it as I went uh, through um, college because I worked part time. And basically, you know, I turned that 20000 into 120000 because anybody could have done that at that point in time in small cap tech. Uh, it wasn't that I was smart or anything like that. And at the time, I was also working for a financial advisor part-time uh, in college, and I was basically a glorified receptionist. And, you know, when the stock market finally burst, and that bubble burst, I was the one answering the calls from the hundreds of clients that were calling in every emotional state that you can think of. And... My portfolio took a hit as well, and I think I turned about 120,000 into about eight, you know, from <laughs> uh, peak to trough. <laughs> so that was quite a learning experience, as well as a learning experience in dealing with other people's emotions, you know, through that time period working for a financial advisor. And I, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was because everything I was investing in was getting smaller and smaller, you know, but I started looking at microcaps at that point in time. Uh, and I actually stumbled upon one that really caught my attention. You know, I, I tell this story in a couple of places, but you know, I stumbled upon a company called XM Satellite Radio, and it's probably a company that you're well aware of. It's a company that would later merge with Sirius Satellite Radio. It's in all of our cars today. Uh, but back then, you know, it was just a story. You know, and it was the leader in a really a story stock. And you know, they had I think they launched a bunch of satellites into space. They had two billion in debt. 
they had very little customers. And obviously, I wasn't drawn to the fundamentals. In fact, I think 42% of the shares were held short in that company. And um, so again, long story short, I saw that they were presented in New York City. You know, I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's probably about a three-hour drive away or three-hour bus ride. And I called the conference organizer, and I just lied. I said, hey, I'm Ian Castle. I'm with Castle Capital. I made that up. Is it okay if I can come to your event? And, you know, I'd like to meet the CEO. And they said, sure. And I was like, okay, great. Um, so I put on my uh, suit that I wore, my senior photos. It still fit, even after a couple years of beer drinking at, in the university. And I got on a bus and went to New York City. Got a chance to meet the CEO, kind of followed him into a back room and had a 10-minute conversation with him. I kind of left that day kind of infatuated with him, infatuated with the story, and ended up taking that $8,000 and plowing it into XM at $1.78 per share. And ultimately, literally, I think it was the next week, they started signing you know, GM and Ford and uh, refinanced their debt. And it went on an epic short-covering rally that took it from $1.78 to $34.14. Oh. And so I ended up making back the money I lost. And obviously we look back at that story and we know it's 150% luck. You know, I know it was, but I like to tell that story because it's really what drew me to microcaps. Um, you know, it was the ability to meet the management teams that drew me into this ecosystem. It's what uh, I believe the true edge is, especially in the smaller microcap arena. It's why I'm passionate. It's what got me involved in it. And I think it's what in, really gets other people excited about it as well. Because, um, you know, even though you're famous, Toby, and I'm, <laughs> you know, we can get access to some people, but we're not calling up Tim Cook at Apple if we want to get some information. So, you know, it was really that access to management, the ability to sit down to management that got me introduced to uh, microcaps. I think it's something that you said to me that I've now said a number of times as well, that microcap investing at its best is like listed venture capital or listed private equity in the sense that they're probably not, the financial statements don't tell the story or don't give you the idea of the potential of the business. You really have to do work outside of the what's written down, you can talk to the company, you go outside that and try and figure out what you're going to do. When you, when you did that with uh, XM, what was it about it that you found attractive? That, was it the fact that they had spent so much money on the satellites and it was trading at a big discount to that? Or what, what, what drew you to it? <laughs> you're, you're really putting me on the spot. It, <laughs> it obviously wasn't anything fundamental because they had no revenues and they had a pile of debt and they were losing money. But you know, I think really that was the story that drew me into it initially. I mean, back then, I know it's hard for people to believe, but you know, you were dealing with terrestrial radio, and you know, you drive 20 minutes outside your where you live, and you start losing signal. You got to find another radio station to tune into. It's just a pain in the butt, and you know, just the thought of having 100 crystal clear channels across the country whenever you want them was a story that I could buy into. And so I was honestly just drawn to the story at that point in time, um, and even you know, taking that to another level. Really, my first, I would say, four or five years in microcap investing and building my initial capital it might surprise some people, but it was mainly in story stocks. You know, they weren't fundamentally driven; they were kind of momentum-driven names. Um, and obviously, my strategies evolved over the years. But it's also, you know, I still am attracted to a good story. Obviously, combined with fundamentals now, um, but I can't really point to anything outside of just, hey, it was a great story and I was at the right place at the right time. Well, how has it evolved? Can you describe for us your process, how you identify these stocks and how you, uh, what sort of diligence you undertake, how you prove up the idea? Sure. Um, maybe to get to that, it's, I'll finish out sort of the background a little bit. So 
out of undergrad, I then went into graduate school at Villanova, um, got my MBA there, and I really only went there because I got into an assistantship that paid my tuition. It was a kind of a great way to waste some time as I kind of honed my craft of microcap investing. And um, and you probably know, you know I mean, you, were, you may have been in Australia at the time, but a lot of the activity in these small microcaps is on message boards or was on message boards in the 2000s because most of the people that own these names are retail investors. And so they just congregate on message boards, especially back then. So, you know, Raging Bull Investors Hub, all these all these places. Um, and so I kind of built up a reputation on there, built up a following, um, found some mentors on there as well that showed me how to kind of interview a management team, how to go visit a management team, that type of thing, and just kind of continue to hone my craft. And outside of, after I went through graduate school, I then um, worked for a consulting company for six months, realized I could do that on my own, kind of started my own consulting firm for uh, three or four years. And really that kind of gave me the time to build my capital in the background to where then I could become a full-time investor, which I did in late 08 um, during the crisis, um, So, which was an interesting time, obviously. Well, that's a good time to do it because there were lots of opportunities. And I, I did the same thing at around about the same time. I, I was working for a firm, but I was it was an Australian firm, so it gave me an opportunity to invest in the States, which was okay. great because I had I had some experience at that stage as a as an attorney and as a lawyer in the States. Yeah. And so it um, it was a it was a very interesting time. Do, do you think that uh, that like the it's an interesting time, but it's a different time to what we what we're confronting now? Do you think that the lessons that you learn in a period like that are helpful, or are they? What, what do you think? Well, you know, leading up to that. Point in time, I really wanted to test my strategy at the time through a bear market, you know, because it's kind of easy to make money when you always have a tailwind at your back. Um, and I didn't know a bear market was right then and there. And it obviously, in hindsight, oh, that's a great time to become a full-time investor. But I didn't know if we were, the world was going to end. Everybody did. You know? like that. <laughs> yeah, it really did. And so, you know, looking back, it's a little bit easy. But, you know, during that time, it was, it was tough. And a couple lessons that helped shape my strategy from from then was, I was in about four companies. I've always been concentrated as an investor, you know, being in, up to that point, three or four, maybe five companies at any given time. And, you know, a couple of the companies I was in were, you know, down 50, 60, 70%, you know, kind of peaked to trough during that economic backdrop. And then I was in one that was up 300%. And it wasn't because I was in a, you know, double X, you know, long gold ETF or something like that. It was because it was a company that was small, it was growing rapidly, it was growing earnings rapidly, and the institutions didn't own it. And what I realized was even in a bad market, a bear market environment, larger pools of capital are attracted to, attracted to companies that are growing quickly, earning more money, not diluting, and that they don't own. <laughs> and you know, even a company like that, that was growing through that economic backdrop, still you know, went up 300% during that awful time period. And so that kind of helped shape me to, to my strategy from that point forward to let's look at these really small microcap companies, these ones that aren't institutionally owned, that aren't in the you know, Russell indices, um, you know, that, that we can get an edge in and find those special companies kind of in the smaller realm of microcap. And you know, that's kind of some of the lessons I learned. The other thing I learned too was, you know, when you're in quality companies like that that are growing, they're also the first ones to bounce back you know, after recession. So, you know, even those ones that were down 50, 60%, you know, three months later, they're up to where you're breaking even again, you know, they bounce back really quickly. So do you, do you characterize yourself as a value investor? Or is it, I mean, how, how do you think about your own process? How, how are you, how are you assessing the opportunity? You know, I would, 
I wouldn't characterize myself as a value investor. Um, I would say it's more of a situational type investor, and this has evolved over the years. But you know, I kind of look at things in situations, not necessarily value or growth. Um, you know, and even you know, we're not we haven't talked about it yet. But the investment strategy I launched a couple months ago, you know, the way that's kind of structured is, you know, I kind of look at things in buckets. You know, and I kind of look at things situational. So the three buckets are sort of I'm looking for these good to great businesses, these businesses that are good, that are special businesses in the small microcap ecosystem that could become great. And I don't think any business in the microcap ecosystem is great until it evolves out of the microcap ecosystem. So that's why I call it good to great. And, you know, not just those businesses that are kind of the best way to pay, play a trend or an area. And, you know, you run into them, too because you're well-versed, you, you find a company that might be the best public way to play a trend or something you want to play, you know, but it's not really the best one. There's five other private companies that are actually doing it better than that company. You're really just buying the sixth best company. You know, what, what's really rare is when you can actually find a company that's a small micro cap that literally is the best in the world, you know, at what they do. And there's not many of them out there, but you can find them. And when you do, those are kind of those really special, good to great businesses. And that that's kind of what is that first bucket of opportunities that I look at. The second bucket is probably fits more of a traditional value or deep value investment bent, which is, you know, finding a company that's a turnaround, you know, and usually you find them when it's trading at book value or a cash or, or whatever. And usually maybe it was mismanaged or it got diversified into too many things. And a new management team comes in and sells off the non-core assets, sells off the subsidiaries they should have never got into and refocuses on a core area where they actually have a competitive advantage. And, um, you know, trying to play that arbitrage where it trades from a value based off a balance sheet to a price to earnings, a growth multiple, you know, and you can get multi-baggers there, as you well know. Um, so that's kind of the second bucket. And the third bucket quickly is kind of the sexiest bucket. I call it, kind of call that the rocket ship bucket. You know, these are the companies that have that 10, 20, 30x potential and um, kind of getting back to my story stock days, you know, that kind of have a great story. Um, and obviously every micro cap says they fit this bucket but very few of them actually do. And you want to make sure that when you're in them, it's not a, you know, a zero. If you're wrong, it's not down 90%. You want to find them where, okay, you're willing to risk 30, 40% of the downside for 20 X, the upside. Um, and you've done the work to believe that you have, you know, better than a coin flip shot, hopefully at that. And all you need is one or two or three of them in your portfolio, even position small. And if one hits and, you know, can take the whole portfolio with it. And so that's kind of how I think about, at least the portfolio construction for myself and, and the strategy as well. What sort of rate do you expect to find uh, those various different types of stocks? I mean, is the is the rocket ship something that's very rare? That might, that's a one in ten or one in twenty, and the the bread and butter tends to be the good and good to great. Or the uh, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, which one is the which one tends to be occupy the most space in the portfolio? Uh, the next. Probably the turnaround and the good to greats are kind of equally weighted, larger, and the rocket ships are sort of smaller. So if you can think of it as 40, 40, 20, maybe something around there. But ironically enough, when I evaluate kind of my returns over the years, a lot of the alpha actually comes from the rocket ship bucket. Um, you know, a lot of it comes from there. And I actually probably spend the most due diligence on that bucket because of that. Um, so even though it's smaller, you know, and even the position sizes per position are smaller, maybe compared to a good to great or a turnaround, you know, a lot of the, the alpha comes from that smaller bucket. They're just harder to find. They're rare. So when you fi is. find them, you do more work to make sure that it is the real thing. But then you've also got to be careful because they, they, uh, they may not be. 
Right, right, exactly. And, and you're hopefully buying what you traditionally are looking for in that bucket is something that has a core asset that provides an underlying floor of value or a legacy business that also provides a floor of value to where, you know, there's a value there, you know, there's, there's something there that's stable that could be sold. Um, and so that's kind of where the value line and hopefully you're buying it close to that, that price. Um, when you're constructing the portfolio, how do you, how many positions do you like to have? Uh, how big do you size them at inception? What do you do when they go up? What do you do when they go down? You know, normally I would say a small position is sort of in that four to 5% uh, at cost, you know, medium would be, you know, eight to 10. And I don't get too particular, like, oh, it's at six, it should be four, you know, it's kind of in that range, you know, and a large, you know, probably 14 to 16%, you know, at cost. Um, and, you know, sort of there's first two buckets of turnarounds and good to greats, you know, those are traditionally more of the ones you can take up, you know, to that 15% if that, that fit that, you know, the, the rocket ships are kind of more like, okay, you might take it up to eight, you know, or nine, you know, but you're not likely going to take it up to 15, 16% at cost. You might let them run higher, but not at cost. Um, so that's, that's traditionally how I think about portfolio sizing. And when they run, do you let them do you let them compound up and just keep on getting bigger and bigger as part of the portfolio, or are you always trimming back to sort of take the capital away and put it into something else? It's a it's a good question. I mean, if we're all being honest with ourselves, and and you're very well experienced in the micro cap ecosystem as well, <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate to say this, but a lot of the big successes in the micro cap space aren't ones that you know go from a dollar to ten to thirty to fifty to hundred. They're kind of ones that go to a dollar and ten back to a dollar. You know, because these are small businesses, you know, they may have had a product or service that got caught up in a fad or, you know, that did well and the, the, the management team tried to diversify into other things and couldn't. Um, and so you just have to keep reminding yourself of, of that. Uh, and so, you know, I do trim the position as it gets bigger. So, you know, I think under normal circumstances, letting it go up to a 30% position size, you know, shaving it down to 25, let it go to 30, shave it down to 25, 30, 20, you know, and, you know, getting some of the gains out of it as it runs is historically what I've done. You know, for my, for me personally, maybe I've let that set of 30, it be 40, you know, or, you know, depending on the situation. It is striking how often that happens that particularly because mine aren't necessarily compounders. They're just companies that are, that are undervalued. And even if the value is declining, if they're at a steep enough discount to that value, I'll buy them. And then they'll, they'll sometimes just through the through, through the turn of the market, get closer to value. At which point, I tip them out, don't think about them, and then a year later, I'm, oh hello, it's back again. It's, <laughs> it's, it's lower than where it was when I first bought it, but it's right. cheaper, or it's it's still it's as cheap. So I, I've had that experience a lot of times. So I'm always very interested, particularly because your strategy has that potential for those compounders that could go from being micro caps to being larger companies. At which point, they probably get more attention. And the management team probably gets better and they get better capitalized. Mm-hmm. Are you prepared to keep on holding them through that process? If, if they no longer sort of meet the definition of a micro cap, are you still yes. a holder? Right. No, absolutely. I'm not going to sell something just because it got bigger. You know, it doesn't make much sense because, you know, I think the key to – I think you can make a good income for yourself by trading, you know, flipping things for 20%, 30% and then trying to find something else. But that's a – you know, it's a really um, tough way to invest. It's a tough way to build wealth. 
um, you know, I think you ultimately want to be holding your winners as long as possible. And, you know, your investment strategy is different than mine. You had Peter Rabover and, and Eric on last time, and they're both great. I love those. I love listening to those podcasts. And, you know, their strategy is different than mine, and yours is different from then. And, you know, I think there's, I, I, I can't stand like, oh, my strategy is better than yours or his is better than yours. You know, it's really what fits your temperament. Right. And, you know, my strategy is not going to be the best one for yours. And ultimately, if we want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it, the best strategy for anybody is really the strategy that lets you stay in your winners the longest. I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you, and that could be different for any single person. So um, my strategy works for me because I'm able to stay in my winners the longest. And, you know, a big part of the strategy as well is, is knowing these positions better than anybody else, or at least trying to, um, you know, having a real good pulse on the things that you own, you know, um, just being just being very aware of what's going on. So, you know, talking to management is important to me, just being able to talk to even competitors, suppliers, you know, making those relationships and trying to get a pulse of how that company is doing. And it's over the years, I can't really say doing that has helped me make any more money. Um, but I can certainly say I'm still in this game because it's kept me from big losers. So, so you, you uh, about... Was it six years ago, roughly, that you became a? F- no, you said two thousand eight. You became a full time. Yeah, you became a little over ten. Ten years ago. Ten years ago, and so uh, when when did you launch the Microcap Club? Launched that in two thousand eleven, and you know, leading up to that, I had my own personal blog where I would just talk about the four or five names that I liked, and it kind of got a big following. And every time I posted on something, it would move the market, and it's you know great for the ego, but I just didn't like that type of exposure. You know, it was getting me. I was like, eh, I don't like that target on my back. And so I kind of looked at what Value Investors Club was doing, looked at what some other folks were doing, and said, you know, it'd be great if we just had some really smart microcap investors in one place you know, that was private where we could just discuss what we liked and why. And so that's kind of how Microcap Club was originated. And, you know, that's what it is today. You know, we have about 190 members from across the world. And we have some subscribers, too, that pay to gain access to the conversations we're having. But, you know, it's really meant to be an idea generator. I wanted to see more ideas. And and that's really why Microcap Club exists. It's just to get idea flow, see what people are talking about it. And the great thing about Microcap, too, as you well know, is especially in the smaller ecosystem, a lot of retail investors... Well, in retail, you know, you're going to have doctors, you're going to have attorneys, you're going to have construction workers, you're going to have entrepreneurs. And the cool thing about that, too, is in a forum, usually somebody has a background that can at least give some information or some insightful information on the companies you're talking about because they're actually in that industry. You know, unlike if it's, you know, it's a large cap forum where everybody, you know, just got their MBAs at the same place. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but <laughs> I don't mean to downplay that, but, you know, it's a very eclectic group of investors as well as companies in this smaller world, smaller ecosystem. And you, you've, have you sourced ideas from other investors in there? Yeah, oh yeah, most definitely. Now we've, we have some really, really good talent. Um, some really good talent. I think it's one of the, the, you know, I've seen many people that got started on microcap club now that we've been around for, you know, seven, eight years, you know, that we're in high school and then they, you know, they launched hedge funds now. You know, and so it's cool to see that. And they're very talented. And so, you know, for me and my own sourcing of ideas, you know, Microcap Club's a good one. You know, obviously, I'm still paying attention to, you know, just press releases, filings, serendipity, you know, but also close relationships that I've been able to foster from Microcap Club with people that you respect that think and look at the world differently than you do. 
to help you become a better investor and also to find ideas. And so there's probably, you know, a dozen investors that I talk to rather frequently, always asking, hey, what do you like and why? And also sharing yourself. There's some phenomenally talented guys in that group. I've seen a few of them speak at uh, various different microcap uh, conferences. I, I can attest to that. Um, some really, really impressive guys in there. Uh, after Microcap Club, you, uh, you've you launched this new, uh, you've launched a firm, but before we get to the firm, let's just talk about intelligent fanatics. What is an intelligent fanatic and what is the the site about? Sure. Um, so, you know, kind of through the investor maturation, you know, I got more and more interested in, you know, what are some of the attributes of some of the great leaders that are out there, you know, and specifically, you know, entrepreneurs that took a business from zero to a billion, you know, what were their characteristics that enabled them to do that? Because if we're getting down to the nuts and bolts of it is, of it is, is, you know, microcap investing is investing in small businesses. You know, if you want to find great companies early, you need to find great leaders early. Um, and I was thinking about that in like 2016, and I just randomly bumped into Sean Eddings, who's also a member of microcap club at the time. And he was, uh, doing some work on John Patterson, who was the founder of NCR, and uh, he started kind of writing a little bit of a report on him, and he was telling me more about how he found out about John Patterson. It was through Charlie Munger, and I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." He said, "Yeah, Charlie Munger said he was a intelligent fanatic," and I was like, oh, "Intelligent fanatic? That's kind of a cool, cool name." I was like, what does that mean? And so we got to talking about it, and you know, the term "intelligent fanatic" is a term Charlie Munger used to really define who a great business builder is. Um, and he mentioned several of them in his in his speeches, you know, throughout the years. And so we started looking at the ones that he mentioned in his in his speeches. And um, some of them were sort of known, and some of them were fairly unknown because they were private businesses that they ran. But you could find information on them. And so Sean, you know, he was the bulldog. He went and just really studied all these individuals and started writing about it. And then we just turned it into a book called The Intelligent Fanatics Project, uh, which is out there on Amazon. And it, we retell the stories of these eight intelligent fanatics that Charlie Munger mentions and, you know, kind of going through their background, their personal background, then their professional, you know, background of how they built their businesses. And ultimately, you know, their, they were, their stories are incredible because they not only built a dominating business, but they dominated then over decades after that. Um, so they didn't just become number one for a couple of years and fall back down to obscurity. You know, these are businesses that dominated the test of time you know, the really special ones. And so diving into what those characteristics were then, what allowed them to, to do that. Um, and that's, then we wrote another book and then- Wait, 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 you gotta, you gotta yes. tell us, what, what, tell us what, the, what the characteristics are. <laughs> well, you can't tease like that. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> you know, I would say, you know, the, the overall theme of it is they were great culture builders. You know, they, the, all the ones that we highlight in the book, they operate in different time frames, kind of different industries, different geographies, but they built these adaptive cultures that, that could adapt to change, um, you know, which, you know, that is, again, a topic we could probably talk on for an hour. Um, so, you know, it was really those folks that built adaptive cultures and how they did that and how they incentivized employees to think like owners and, and all of these kind of probably eight to ten characteristics that made them just great leaders overall, the ability to delegate, you know. Just a whole slew of them, and we talk about it in the book. But and then you know, just kind of then applying that to investing—that's really was my sole purpose leading into it. But then it just got really, really fun, kind of diving into these stories and and then applying that to my own investing. And then you know, just studying these great leaders is a lot of fun. So we ended up 
building a community around it, IntelligentFanatics.com. Um, now we have two books. We have a third book coming out, the Intelligent Fanatics of India, that we study Intelligent Fanatics in India, um, which is going to be coming out later this year. And Sean's just a workhorse, and he's just a very talented person. He just came out with a Twitter game that it's I think you phenomenal. Yeah, so we're just coming out with other kind of cool tools and things like that. We should just uh, we'll have to. I'll link to this in the show notes. But he created a, a choose your own adventure on Twitter. The the amount of effort to go into building it, I can't even imagine because it's so detailed and it's so good and it's really really fun. Do you want to t- talk about it a little bit? Yeah, I know. It all originated from another piece, a brilliant piece of work that he did on Monster Beverage, where. And I don't get to what you were, but he, he looks at Monster Beverage, which was one of the biggest winners of all time. Hanson's. Yeah, that used to be Hanson's. And he went back through all their annual reports, all the articles that are ever written about him, and basically told it as a story. And what was fascinating about it is you know, the way he tells it, and I, I, I tell it in a presentation I did called it Messing is Hard. I kind of retell a little part of it, but you know, you, you kind of follow the path in the story and you're like, I could never hold this thing. You know, it's great, it's up 80,000%, but there's no way I would, because at every point in the time, there's things that are go against what you and I believe in and is it with investing. Like, you know, at one point, you know, 50,000% ago, the founder sells 26% of his position just because, you know, there's no way you would have probably held past that point. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a signal. That's a very strong signal. Yeah. And then really early days, Pepsi says, we're going to get into that market. And they have you know, unlimited resources going up against a $200 million market, you know, cap in Manson. You know, so anyway, so kind of each one of those steps in that type of story is, all right, would you hold? Would you buy more? Would you sell? And this is what would happen if you did. And so getting back to the Twitter game, that's how he um, kind of architected it as well. You know, you start off with uh, the C, you know, uh, CEO presents a story or, or you're at a conference. You know, do you, would you invest in A, B or C companies? And they give different characteristics of each. And if you click on A, B or C, it takes you down different paths and you can choose whether to buy, hold, sell, you know, at, a, at each increment. And it's just a really engaging way. And it's also interesting because it's a real story. You know, he's not making up a story. He actually finds real stories just like Monster Beverage that you're actually following that path. And he'll, you'll find out which company you're actually following at the end of it. It's very so. clever. So on, on the uh, Monster Beverage Hansons, do you think, is it luck that you held through that period? Or, what, what, or is, it, is it knowing that this is the path that companies like this take? Amazon, Morgan Housel has a I think he posts, he talks about Amazon on a regular basis that, you know, Amazon, I think, has drawn down something like 90% more than once over its its lifetime. So it's up enormously, but could you hold through that period? Is that is that the lesson that you're trying to uh, hammer into your own head in when, you, when you're looking at those return paths? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's just a lot of luck involved, you know, and I think it's hard for investors because you want to think of these multi-baggers as kind of these linear up and to the right financials you know and, and monster beverage went through some tough times in those in those days you know they had 80 percent drawdowns a few times you know and it's because the business fundamentals sagged you know and so it would have been really hard to hold that i mean it almost would have to have been you know a position size that was either insignificant or you really literally had a coffee can coffee can that thing and put it under the mattress and just hold it and forget about it or you do something like uh lou simpson talks about this a little bit that even if he thinks something is expensive, he trims it way back and he just keeps a, a, a small holding in it so he can continue to watch what it does. Mm-hmm. So he, he talks about doing that with Nike 
and uh, with some of his other more well-known positions as well, that even when he thought they were expensive, he'd never fully exit, he'd, but he would trim it back to the point that it was sort of not really meaningful anymore in the portfolio. But at least you've got your eye on it then. If it falls a lot, you've got that opportunity. You know it really well. You're already in it. You've got that behavioral, psychological element, which I think is something that you've done a lot of work on as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important, at least it is for me, you know, if you're going to be in winners, you're going to be in things that are going to be expensive at times. And I think it's okay to trim them, but you really don't want to trim all the position backs. And a lot of, you know, when you look at these companies that have excelled over time, they've constantly exceeded people's expectations. And, you know, you, you need to allow them, you need to allow the positions that you own to exceed your expectations. Give them that opportunity. Yeah, that's, yes. that's, a, that's an interesting yeah. insight. Yeah, and so I, I try kind of like Lou, and that was new to me. I didn't realize that. Thanks for telling that that story. You know, I kind of agree with that. I mean, I think it's important not to sell everything, you know, as it goes up, because these things will constantly exceed your expectations, um, and the great ones do. You know, and you can and you can find them in the microcap ecosystem. I can think of you know ten stories like that just through my 15 years of companies that, that continue to do that. And you're like, well, I guess I shouldn't have sold 60% of my holdings at this price, you know? <laughs> it's the it's the curse of the deep value investor that uh, we're always selling way too soon. And I, I think that there's there's some, I've seen some good, uh, some good arguments that you should buy as a deep value investor and then perhaps sell as a momentum investor, which means, you know, giving it that opportunity to run away from uh, your valuation but still keeping an eye on it so that it, it mm-hmm. still does have that kind of that thrust behind it. So if it then eventually loses its its tail and trims some at that stage, I'm, I don't know what the solution is, but I'm, I'm still it's something that I'm still yeah. grappling with. Yeah, it's a I think it's a mental block because it is for me too. I mean, it's it's tough to go from viewing something at a value to viewing it as growth. You know, especially if right. you consider yourself as a deep value investor, it's hard to hold something when it gets above fair value. You know, and I get that. You know, it, it's it's very difficult. Um, so you've you've now launched a firm to implement uh, your so folks can invest with you. It's Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management. Can you tell us a little bit about the firm? Sure. Um, so launched Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management in May of this year, and it's something I started thinking about a couple of years ago. And you know, over the last fifteen years, I usually got approached by a few people every year about you know managing some of their capital and the strategy that I that I use for myself. And I've always said no, quite honestly, because of that experience I had uh, during the bubble crash of you know two thousand one. You know, answering that phone call from those retail investors calling at that financial advisor's office. Um, and, you know, I kept on saying no and saying no, and you keep saying no because he said no. Uh, and I think it was maybe two, three years ago, someone said something to me, and then I said, you know, maybe I should actually think about this and, you know, talk to my wife about it, prayed about it, and it was kind of one of those things where, you know, I think this is something I want to do. Um, and I was starting to meet people that I thought have the volatility tolerance. I don't say risk, I'm not saying these things are riskless, but I don't view what I do as risky, I view it as volatile. And there's a big difference between those two words. Um, so for those you know people that have a volatility tolerance that um, want to invest in you know kind of small businesses that are public, you know, you know I can probably put something together. And so I started putting the pieces together for it, thinking about the structure and things like that about 18 months ago, and put a lot of time and effort into doing it the right way, um, getting the structure the way it needed to be, and then ultimately setting up a vehicle to where I'm really truly spending a lot of effort now trying to find the right investors to invest alongside me in it. 
How are they? Is it is it managed accounts or is it how it is, is it structured? It's a managed account. Um, you know, unfortunately, when you're starting small, um, you know, we're talking about a few million dollars here. You know, it doesn't lend itself well to doing it as a private fund because then you have to spend fifty, hundred thousand dollars a year for audits and things like that. And I just didn't want to have that administrative burden on top of such a small kind of portfolio or or, or a strategy to begin with. You know, because it wouldn't make sense to start off investing a strategy with twenty million, let's say, even in something like this, because you know, I'm investing in companies that trade ten, twenty thousand dollars worth of stock a day. You know, and so it makes sense to start small, grow small, um, which goes counter to almost everything that's institutionalized <laughs> out there. You know, and ultimately this is a capacity constrained investment strategy. You know, there's gonna be a point in time that it's just gonna there's gonna I'm just gonna have to shut it down or turn it into more of a private fund structure. What what, what do you estimate the capacity constraint at? I don't know, you know, to be honest with you. I, I think it's probably somewhere around 15, 20 million is my guess. It, uh, may be, might, it might be a little bit more. It may be higher than you think because you may uh, you may adapt and evolve as you go along and you may, I mean, you may become a control investor, who knows? Well, and, and that's what you kind of run into because you start thinking about even at 10 million, if you have 10 positions or 15 or eight, you know, you can have to be able to file in some of these companies already, even at that size. Um, so it, at a certain point, you know, it will reach capacity. But, you know, right now, you're just trying to get a few million dollars in, which we're almost there already and, and trying to find, but spending most of the time just trying to find the right investors and having a lot of good conversations. I don't view this as an institutional product offering. You know, it's more of a entrepreneurial product offering. And I find that, you know, small business owners, venture capitalists, even, even private equity folks, you know, they having a lot of conversations with them and they get it you know it's just like hey if there's one place to be in the public markets it's in small illiquid micro caps because it's really <laughs> the last areas to get an edge you right. know and they understand that so um so it's been ha fun having those conversations and uh and i think it's I have, i've had a lot of fun since launching it as well do they need to be do your investors need to be accredited yes yeah yeah i have um because it's an SMA, so separately managed accounts, so for the audience that doesn't know what that is, it's strict, just simply a, a brokerage account that's in your name. You own the securities in it. You know, I would just manage it. So there's complete transparency, uh, unlike a private fund structure, which is a pool of capital. You kind of really don't see what you're doing until the end of the quarter. Um, and, you know, the, the, the fund manager is able to kind of operate it as a pool of capital. The reason why, you know, for the SMA, I put some restrictions on it. Like I have a $100,000 minimum, $200,000 maximum, which nobody ever puts a maximum on anything. But the reason why there's a maximum is because, again, the illiquid nature of these securities. Um, I kind of view this first round as sort of a membership ticket, you know, like this is what it is. You know, I'll probably let people put more in over time, but I want to let people get their feet wet with it and see if this is something that they truly like. You know, I'm trying to screen out all the wrong people the best I can, which I've done many times already. Uh, but really in a, in a case where somebody wants to get their money out, making sure that that 200,000, that maximum is an amount that I could get out without disrupting the portfolio of everybody else at the same time. So that's why yeah. I, I limit the maximum that somebody can put in because it's the right thing for the strategy. It's the right thing for the other investors in it. Do you find opportunities harder to come by in a market that is, uh, you know, we're 10 years into a bull market that, uh, that there have many more ETFs that sort of plumb these depths. Do you, are you finding opportunities harder to come by, or, do, or are you at a level that you're not you're not seeing that because you, you, it's just too hard for ETFs to come into that area? 
you know, I, I think if anything, I think if anything, uh, no, no, I, mean, I, I think there's still plenty of opportunities. I mean, it's a big pond. I mean, you're talking about there's 20,000 public companies in North America, about 9,000 of them are micro caps. So that's sub 300 million. I'm predominantly looking at sub 100 million. There's still 7,500 to 8,000 companies, sub 100 million. And that's predominantly the area that institutions can't play in. And so there's a lot of rocks to turn over there. And there's a lot of interesting situations that, that you can stumble upon. I mean, you know, believe it or not, you can still find, now that we know the buckets, you, I, you can still find kind of good to great businesses that are trading at 10 PEs, X cash. And so you can still find them down here. You know, and that's the interesting thing about this ecosystem. And, you know, if they continue to grow, earn more money and not dilute and grow, their shares go up, you know, they'll ultimately be found by institutions. And that's that's why we're doing this. But uh, but I I think the opportunity set, it might get a little bit more restricted, but you're, you can still find things down here, even in today's market. Are there any themes that you're looking at at the moment? Are there any sectors in particular that you like or, or businesses that you like? Um. Without discussing the names, I would say that I don't really look at it as looking, trying to find companies in the theme. There's certainly different. You appreciate that. There's there's a mining company in the strategy. There's some med tech. There's some SaaS names. There's some service companies. Um, you know, there's pretty much every industry represented there. You know, and and normally what happens is, you know, I find ultimately in microcap, what you're trying to find is trying to find these businesses at an inflection point. And what that normally means and why I don't use even screens as a way to find ideas is you're really trying to find those companies that at the inflection point of profitability. And you're kind of trying to find that company that's losing five cents, losing three cents, earning three cents, earning eight. You know, and that's how you get a multi-bagger. You know, when you find a, a dollar stock that all of a sudden goes from losing five cents to earning five cents, and you're able to capture, okay, well, you know, if things continue, you have that delta, 20 cent delta on the year, you know, that's how you can be at this, be a three or $4 stock. You know, that's, you know, that's generalizing too much, but that's generally what you're trying to find. Um, and so a lot of it is just through different people trying to find these types of businesses that you can't really find in screens, but you're trying to find them close to that inflection point where you kind of have to dig below the financials to do the work to see these things boiling under the surface of those financials before everybody else sees them when they do. Do you know what is funny? I think, I think it was you who said it, but you're, you're, the sweet spot is about two quarters before profitability. Is that yeah. possible that's you who said that? So I, heard I think you... I may have said it, but I, <laughs> I'm not sure if it was me or not. But it's... I've said that before, but I, somebody else could have said it. Too. Apologies to whoever said that if it, yeah. if, if, if it was in fact not Ian. But I heard you say that and then... You know, if I think it was you who said that, and then everybody in that microcap ecosystem, including the companies themselves, hear somebody say that. And it was the next microcap conference that I went to. Almost every company that I spoke to told me that they were two quarters away from profitability. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. And the first time I heard that, I thought, "Oh my God, this is this is that thing that Ian was talking about." I got to make sure that I get a little bit of this one. And then the next one, and then by the third or fourth company that said that i thought oh hang on they all heard ian say that at the same time that i heard ian say that That's yeah really clever. <laughs> well and these things uh, all these situations always take more time it's like when, when you think about your own investing when you when you lay out your thesis you know how many times has an investment actually occur the thesis actually occurred in the time frame that you originally thought like next to never you know maybe like two out of ten or one out of ten you know and so oftentimes you have to give them more time but you know it's also why you don't invest in companies that have bad balance sheets you know that if it takes a couple more quarters 
then that's okay. Um, because I think even in the microcap ecosystem compared to large cap, you even have tend to have even more short sightedness in the microcap ecosystem than even you know in large caps. And so if you can really have a 12 month perspective, which is not long term, I don't think. I think you can have an edge on a lot of a lot of other investors that are kind of playing it for the next quarter or two. One of the things that I always get nervous about in uh, microcap investing, because I think of what what I do um, for the most part is I sort of bowling with the bumpers on. But I when when I'm microcap because it doesn't they don't screen very well. You really have to. It's back to being a real investor again and having to kind of eyeball management and work out whether what they're telling you is the truth or not. And I sometimes get the feeling that these guys are just way too smart for me as a potential small investor in their in their companies and that really what they've become very good at is speaking to small investors rather than than running their mm-hmm. businesses but I just and you know the business the the opportunity does seem enticing and interesting and way too sophisticated for the level that the business is at and that's something that always sets off alarm bells for me but how do you how do you assess management how do you make that decision that what they're telling you is in fact the case and they're not just guys who've been you know microcap mm-hmm. promoters for decades right well it's it's a good question and ironically after doing the intelligent fanatics work one of the areas that I've evolved is I probably put too much um, emphasis on the founder, the CEO, him or herself. And I think what you want to do to assess the businesses, you know, you want to talk to them, but you really want to talk to the people right underneath them, you know, the, the, the people that are kind of executing his or her strategy. And so I know when I'm talking to a business, I try to talk to two or three people underneath the CEO and get to know them as best that I can and get form some sort of an opinion on, you know, get to know them, see how, how they talk about the CEO, because obviously the CEO is going to tell you that everything's great. Um, but you'll find out more from talking to the people underneath him or her than actually the CEO themselves, what I found about what reality really is. And that's what you and I really are after as investors. You know, is this really as good as what he or she is saying? Um, and then really the second part of that is if you want to assess the culture of a business, you don't need to talk to the, the CEO either. You want to talk to the kind of lowest level employee in that business. You know, um, that you go there and you ask, try to find one or two of those folks and see if they like working there. Would they move across the street if they got a dollar an hour or more, you know, by a competitor across the street or whoever? You know, is there a sense of a culture there? And so if you want to get a pulse on this culture, you talk to employees. If you want to get uh, a pulse on the execution and of the respect of the CEO, you talk to the people underneath the CEO. And if you want to get assessment of really the vision, you, you talk to the CEO. And so you kind of have to talk to multiple layers of people inside that company to try to get a better sense of reality. Then you also have the situation at some of these conferences where they bring their investment banker or they bring their, their the person who's taken them public and who's helping them raise capital. Mm-hmm. And so you spend a lot of time talking to the the banker. Do you, do, you, do you view that as a positive or a negative that they bring them? Is that being too promotional or is that just that really what they're, they're focused on the business and they're probably less sophisticated on the, on the capital management side? You know, I think it's okay to have maybe an investor relations person there. But, you know, for me and my, the way I invest, I, I tend to not invest in companies that need to raise capital. So I generally wouldn't be investing in somebody that would have a banker next to them, you know, for the most part. Um, and that would probably be my best advice to investors looking in this ecosystem. Unfortunately, they're drawn into the space usually by, you know, something that 
is attached to a fad, whether it's, you know, whether it's crypto or, you know, marijuana or cannabis or whatever it is, and then they lose all their money and they never want to look at this ecosystem again. Well, you know, look at this ecosystem like you would any other investment that was large cap, you know, look for something that's growing, profitable, doesn't need to raise money to grow, you know, hasn't diluted shareholders, you know, has a management team that owns some stock. So they're real owners, you know, just use those very simple things as a quick filter and you'll filter out probably 95% of the issues that you might have investing in this ecosystem. Because these small companies, all many of them, you know, they still file with the SEC, you know, they're still audited financials. Um, so, you know, I, I would just say stick to companies with fundamentals. You won't get burned. Do you ever wonder why, why haven't these guys gone a more traditional VC route? Because it does seem that there's an enormous amount of VC, venture capital available um, mm-hmm. I was listening to a podcast last night. There's an on uh, the the startup, you know, the difference between growth hacking and value hacking. Value hacking is making sure that your product fits the niche, and growth hacking is then supercharging that growth once you've got that mm-hmm. got that fit. Um, do you find Do you find that is, is I mean, is that something that you think about? Why don't they? Wouldn't it be easier just to raise some venture capital? There's this could be a podcast again in itself, but. So here in the U.S., um, to kind of give a little bit of a historic backdrop, companies used to go public primarily through reverse mergers, as you well know, Toby. And that sort of ended in 2010. And so a lot of people, you know, and you, and you see a lot of statistics from other people and a lot of articles being written about how public companies are dying off. There's not as many of them. You know, what a lot of those folks that write the articles don't even dive into, maybe because they don't even know about it, is how many companies went public through reverse mergers up until 2010, you know, up until 2010, there were somewhere between 700 and 800 reverse mergers done per year in the United States. You know, that's more than 10% of the companies that trade on the NASDAQ and NYSE combined. That's how many were entering the ecosystem. So after 2010, you know, when all Was that the Chinese reverse yes, merge run? That kind of put, an end to not a complete end, but the amount of reverse mergers went from 800 down to 100. Was and it a regulatory thing or is it just the, the marketplace just wouldn't bear it anymore? It's just the marketplace didn't trust anything because it was a reverse merger at that from that point forward. And so you had a lot of companies back then that would use reverse mergers, raise one to five million dollars, go public. And yes, 80 percent, 90 percent of them shouldn't have. They went public too soon or they got fed a bill of goods by a banker to do it. And they were kind of, um, you know, toss in the deep end of the pool to figure out how to be a public company and they drowned, you know, but it's a law of law, you know, the law of large numbers to where, hey, 5% out of the 800 or 10% of the 800 would ultimately end up doing well, uplisting to the NASDAQ. And that was feeding into the, you know, the larger markets. And you don't have that because, you know, now you're having 5% of 100 instead of 800. And so now you're kind of, at least in the U.S., you don't have very many companies going public as small microcaps anymore. Um, and it's really a shame. That's why over time it's become more important to be sort of a worldwide microcap investor or an international one. The complete opposite of what I just said is happening in Canada. And so in Canada, where their private markets, their VC markets aren't as robust as down here in the United States, um, a lot of companies, that's why it's called the venture market up there, venture exchange, you know, they can go public, you know, raise five or $10 million relatively easily and go right into being public. And you're seeing a lot of here recently, a lot of U.S. companies going public in Canada because it's easier for them to raise capital 
and go public in Canada than it is even down here in the United States, which is a real shame. But. And Australia too. Uh, and Australia. One of the advantages of Australia is that there's no secondary board. So there's the, the, the Toronto TSX uh, .v is the venture is the venture market there. And then UK has the AIM, which is a secondary board. The, the Australian Stock Exchange has no secondary board. So the listing rules are lower for anybody, which I think is if you're listing as a company, then you, you get that ASX brand, which is sufficiently mm -hmm. sufficiently well-respected around the world that it does show that you can, you listed, you're subject to all the rules. You've got to file uh, audited financials and so on. They've got a half-year filing rather than quarterly filing. And that's an ecosystem that I like too, because there's a lot of um, self-managed super funds, which are the 401k equivalent mm -hmm. in Australia. And Australians like to gamble and they like to gamble on <laughs> uh, on small mining companies a lot, because that's a lot of what, what comes to market. You know, basically, they all they have is staked out ground. They've got a right mm -hmm. to explore and they raise money to go and explore. Like that's what you're, that's what you're paying for. So this, the strike rate is low, but when they hit, they hit enormously, which is, you know, it's a little bit like buying the lottery ticket. So I, I think that uh, it's it's a shame that you don't see a lot of it in the States. There's not enough of it in the States, but you can find it. And I, I, I just just uh, seconding what you say, you can find it in Canada and you can find it in Australia. And it's always fun, I think, to go and look at those little companies. Mm -hmm. I always flip to see who's getting paid and how they're getting paid. And how much are they it's selling down? I know you're, you're you have you have your right foot in Australia, so I understand it. But it drives me insane because you know here you have a population, and probably the dynamics between Canada and Australia are kind of similar. They're kind of resource-based cultures. You know, probably everybody grew up owning a junior mining stock in Australia or Canada, and so risk is part of your profile. Here in the United States, it's just like, oh, you know, why would you own something risky? You know, that that's just awful. You know, and it it really annoys me because what does Canada have? Thirty-eight million people as a population. We have three hundred eighty million down here. And it's much easier for a company to go public, raise ten million, and be a listed company under the same basically auditing controls as they have down here. You know, it just bothers me. You know, and eventually, hopefully, that will change down here to where we can bring small companies public, good companies public effectively in the US again. What's the reason that it's harder here? Is it Sarbanes-Oxley? Is that the Yeah, that I mean, I, th I think it's Sarbanes-Oxley and um, quite honestly, it's, I think uh, Bank of America Merrill, you can no longer even buy anything sub $5 in an account. Really? Um, you can't, I think there's only two or three regional brokers that will even accept stock certificates anymore in the United States, which obviously puts a crimp on raising capital if you're already public. You know, it's like, I'm not going to write you a check for $50,000 so I can never deposit that certificate anywhere. Right. And that's kind of the situation it is here in the United States. So that just puts a big freeze, you know, on everything. Um, and it's a, it's a combination of everything. I don't want to, um, I don't want to beat it up too much, but I, it's hard to believe it can get worse, so that means it should be getting better. <laughs> I, I I worked as general counsel for a company. Started out as uh, as a microcap. I was the I was a listing lawyer at the time that it went through, and I did the, all of the diligence on the company and met the two guys who were. They'd both put in a hundred thousand dollars into this company, and I think that they and they in the listing they raised. I'm going to get this wrong, but say three million dollars in the listing for a ten million dollar market cap. On listing, including including the three million that they'd raised, they oh, sold wow. it. They sold it within four or five years for six hundred million dollars. And it was uh, when the business was described to me, they said it's two guys from this little country town in the state that I was from, and they have this fiber optic business. 
And I had this this vision of like these two guys on this dusty little lot making fiber optic cable. What it was was yeah. pretty sophisticated. They were putting fiber optic cable, dark fiber into the central business districts so people could get off the other, the big telcos and create their own sort of private links between data centers and so on. And then that business grew incredibly rapidly. Mm-hmm. So it, it was that was the first time really that I had seen that you could put these unexpectedly great businesses or you could find these unexpectedly great businesses run by incredibly smart guys trading at these tiny tiny market capitalizations and for doing just a little bit of work it would have rapidly become very clear how smart the managers of these companies are so i'm i'm a big believer in the strategy and i I definitely uh i can see that it that it works. I, the thing that always makes me nervous is that I think that you're at such a disadvantage to 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 the manager as an outside investor. So how do you, I mean, how do you get comfortable? How do you how do you get enough information to make your decision? You don't do it all at once. Um, you buy in gradually over time. You know, normally look at what they say and, and then gauge that yeah. against and, what the, they and then buy more once you see if they do anything. You know, and so, you know, the normal process is more traditional research of looking through the filings and, you know, however far back you want to go um, and really talking to as many, you know, kind of typical Phil Fisher, talk to many, you know, suppliers, customers, you know, given the type of company it is, as you can to formulate an investment thesis and really try to know that the business as intimately well as you can before you even talk to management. So, you know, which the best questions are to ask um, and. Kind of, and I agree with Phil Fisher when he said, you know, you really shouldn't, by the time I talk to management, basically 70% of the way to a buying decision. I think that's what he said. And that's kind of the way I view it too. I think it's important to know this company really, really well before you even pick up the phone to talk to management. And really, when you're talking to management, you're just trying to almost check mark off the things that you already thought were happening or maybe provide some color in some areas that you weren't able to, to get on your own with outside research. Um, and so normally what it looks like is after that process of talking to them, you know, you buy a little bit of, of a position or maybe let's just call it a third of your position that you want to ultimately acquire. And then you kind of wait and see and see if they execute on anything that they have told you or the market uh, that they were going to do. And then if you start seeing them as being executors of their strategy, which is rare in the microcap ecosystem, then you buy more and hopefully you're averaging up. You know, um, some of my biggest winners were ones I was constantly averaging up in because they kept on executing. Um, so, and then usually after I see some execution, I'll make a site visit out to go visit the company, try to meet with them, try to meet with their management team. Um, I try not to plan it too much. I'll try to have some sort of time where I can meander into the somewhere and talk to an employee or two, you know, to try to address the culture, things that we talked about earlier, uh, and really kind of check mark that last box of, okay, I've been there. Um, I was able to, you know, sit across the table or boardroom from the management team, you know, assess them, spend some time with them, go out with them that night, you know, that type of thing, get them out of there and see how they really are, um, you know, doing all that, all that stuff. And that's kind of when you buy maybe your last third at cost that you that you want to purchase. But that can, that can take, you know, a year through that process of actually acquiring a full position, you know, but probably like early on, I would buy everything all at once and that works when it works, but then it doesn't work when it doesn't work. And so what I found works is buy a little bit, let their execution prove how big your position size should be, you know, and then, then go from there. What's the, what's the micro cap Bible? Is it, is it common stocks and uncommon profits, the Phil Fisher book? I think that's one. I mean, I, I think most people enjoy Peter Lynch, 
you know, as well. I think he's anything he writes is is really good. But you know, I think you know it's interesting. I was thinking about it the other day. You know, I never read anything from Warren Buffett until I was a full time investor. <laughs> and that's not to say I was special or anything like that. But uh, but I was. Was thinking it helpful? Yeah. No. I mean, <laughs> I wish I did earlier. I just didn't. I was kind of in my own world just doing my thing and what did you read or you didn't read anything you just sort of you you just sort of felt your way there you know i think the first person i read was phil fisher and then peter lynch i just i spent so much time in my mid-20s early traveling talking to people meeting management teams kind of the under learning the the soft skills of socializing communication getting somebody to like you you know and that's what i had I had a couple mentors, you know, that they were just brilliant. You know, there's guys that five minutes you'd like them. And, you know, obviously, if you like somebody, you you're more willing to talk to them about things. So, you know, just tell them too much those. accidentally. Yeah, right, right. And ultimately, hitting on that part, one of the things you pick up on too in the microcap ecosystem is you'll run into operators that do tell you too much. And all pretty much 98% of the time, the ones that tell you too much execute too little. You know, they're the ones that don't really do anything. Um, so. What I found over the years is what you're generally attracted to through your human nature, somebody that's good at sales, you know, someone that talks a good game is almost the opposite of what you want to find when you're actually finding one of these operators. You know, I just it just took me four months to get a CEO on the phone. Literally just yesterday I finally did. I saw the tweet. Yeah, how how's that's the conversation? Through, oh my goodness, that was through using back channels like reverse psychology, you know, <laughs> how to blackmail influence people, trying to contact people through LinkedIn that he was associated with, you know, it's just all this stuff. And finally, and I thought I would have an hour with him on the phone, you know, 15 minutes. So I was like, oh, scrambling, trying to get a few questions asked. But, but that's honestly, but that's kind of what you want to find. And probably eight, nine years ago, I would have never, I wouldn't have pursued it anymore. I would have had the mentality of you're a public company. You should want to talk to me because you're public. And if you don't, it just shows that you don't care about me as a shareholder or a potential shareholder. And that was kind of bar none. And then, then you get to, to meet more and more CEOs and, and you realize, no, it's the ones that are kind of focusing on the business, you know, where they realize that focusing on their employees, focusing on their customers will create, you know, a great stock, which will create great shareholders, you know. And so you, everything's gotten realigned. And that's kind of more of the intelligent fanatics principles as well, you know, that I've learned through that as well. One of the things that, I, as a, just just going back to the company that I was involved with as uh, as as general counsel, one of the things that always made me most nervous was when I'd sit in board meetings and I'd hear the the executives, the guys who are actually working in the business, describe what was happening to the directors. And I always thought it's so hard for these directors to understand what's actually happening in this business, even though they're meeting monthly, talking to management, getting you know straight from the horse's mouth what's happening and and in a completely unvarnished unpolished way you know this is this is what's happening we need you to understand this because we need to make these decisions mm-hmm. and move on but i thought even if even these directors are going to struggle to understand what's happening cuz so you know so, there's a scramble at the end of every quarter to make the sales and that can like right up to 5 p.m. on the close of the quarter which you, you're not allowed to count anything beyond that point the mm-hmm. sales guys are out there trying to get the guy to sign on the dotted line and if it happens or it doesn't happen it makes a material difference to the to the sales over that quarter and then at their leisure the directors come in and read the oh that's great we had a really good quarter without sort of seeing the blood sweat and tears that had gone into 
yeah. to getting to that point and how close it was that that it wasn't actually going to be the case. And yeah. I thought as an outside investor, you're looking at that and you're just plotting that revenue line, having no idea. That's the thing that makes me most nervous about um, this type of investing, that uh, I, the, the information asymmetry between the management, and even if they really understand what's happening, and I, I don't think that they all do, I think that some of them uh, are, are too unsophisticated for the, the position they're in. So uh, I'm, how, how, do you, how do you get over that? You just, you just say, well, I, I know that there's some stuff I can't understand, and I, well, I know that there's some stuff I can never find out, and I just have to deal with that uncertainty. I think the thing that frees you up as an investor is when you realize you're not going to be right all the time. You know, especially in microcap investing, it's not a game of batting average; it's slugging percentage. Right. You know, it's letting your winners run, and you know, it's you're going to be right five out of five or five out of ten times or six out of ten times. You are going to be wrong, um, and I think that kind of frees you up. Not mean you're doing any less work; it's just it kind of frees you up mentally to know I don't need to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect at this, um, because quite honestly, the situations you're investing in aren't perfect. You know, some of the best opportunities, even deep value, are the ones that don't look very good. Right. Well, that's, know, where that, that's why reasons. they exist. Yeah, and that's why and that's why they exist. And like you said, I mean, most people don't understand that they just see the the financials or the quarterly, quarterly results, and they don't know the knife fight that's happening in the right. behind the scenes. You know, which you got to witness too, and that's very true. I mean, I had, you know, I think a big part of being a successful investor is understanding your own um, kind. Of, understand your own biases and understand your own limitations. You know, through some of my experiences over the years, I know one of mine is I'm probably too empathetic to management teams, you know, because I mean, I can't imagine being a public CEO. It has to be the worst job on the planet, especially a small microcap CEO. You know, it is tough. I mean, when you think about you're going to be, you're at the small, nimble, impressionable business, and now you're going to be analyzed by a bunch of people that probably don't know it as well as you, and they're forming their own investment thesis, their own expectations on what you should be doing, and then you're going to try to hit their expectations, let alone your own internal ones, which you don't share, maybe, or maybe you do. You know, it's just a tough position. I, quick story. So, just came to mind. One of the a company I invested in 2007, it was kind of a luxury experience, which did well in 2007, six. And uh, the CEO invited me down to their company's Christmas party. And there was probably about 200 people there. They had spouses there. They had their kids there. And it was uh, the company was doing well. It probably grew 30 40%. And, um, and I got a chance to sit there and hear a couple of the employees get up and talk favorably about. And he was handing out awards to the, the best of this or you know the receptionist of the month and all this stuff. And it was just a cool experience. And I think I owned like 3 or 4% of that company. And, you know, I got to know the CEO pretty well. And then... I ended up selling out of it, and then you know, 2008 occurred, and their business just flatlined. And I still was talking to the CEO, and he invited me back to their Christmas party again. And there's 40 people there. It was the most solemn group. I mean, they were thinking about they're going to have to shut down, like declare bankruptcy. It's brutal. Yeah, it was just brutal. And uh, I remember talking to him after that, and you know, we, like, I stayed friendly with him, and and he just, I remember him saying this thing, and, and it really hit. He just said, you know, sometimes doing the best you can isn't good enough. Yeah. You know, and I, and it kind of stuck with me because I think a lot of us as investors, we look at the investments we're in and we form these investment theses or we have an idea of what it should look like and it's just not reality. And when things don't come to plan, to our plan, we think it's somebody's fault. We think it's management's fault. We think it's 
that's management's fault. You know, and sometimes things just don't work out. You know, <laughs> it's not anybody's blame. They were just they they didn't take advantage of the opportunity. It's not really anybody's fault. It just wasn't meant to be. And so you just kind of move on to something else. You know, and so people are so quick in the investment world to kind of poke blame at the the management teams if something doesn't work or not. And so one of my biases, I'm still probably too empathetic towards management teams because I really respect the position they're in. Doesn't mean I'm not going to cut the cord if I don't think an investment <laughs> is working, but. But, you know, it's still something where I, I probably side too much with them just because some of my experience is like that one. It's difficult. I, I sometimes wonder if people like when smaller companies have a, a, a better known CEO or a CEO that comes in from a larger company and comes down to that. But I think that sometimes I think that's that's not an ideal situation because they have, if the company, if you come from sort of a mid cap where they're reasonably well financed and they've got a lot of support around them and they're used to having that support, and really what the smaller companies have to do is you need to be more of a jack of all trades as a CEO. You need to be able to do very many things because the people who are underneath you probably weren't quite at that level mm-hmm. where they were. So you, all of a sudden you have to be where you could have relied on, I don't want to say the CFO, but you could have relied on somebody else to know exactly what they're doing. Now you have to be alert to, is the, is the information that they're giving me the right information? Are they, are they, do they know what they're looking for? And I have to know if they're not quite there. And sometimes I don't think that the they're just they're used to being coddled. You know? Yes. No, I, I agree with you 100%. I think people look too much at big company experience. I mean, these are small companies. You want I want to see entrepreneurial experience. And a lot of people, you know, they want to. I don't mind seeing failure either because that usually means they learn something, you know. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I, I, I like to see entrepreneurial experience over big company experience because that usually means they're just used to big budgets. Used to scrapping if, you, if you've got that entrepreneurial yeah. background. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, you need to be able to operate on a shoestring and figure things out. You need to be an entrepreneur. I mean, these are small businesses just like other small businesses that are private. You know, these are five employees, 10 employees, 50 employees. These are small companies. You know, often people ask me about microcaps. It's like, you know, what's the largest company in your small town? That could be a microcap, you know? Right. <laughs> Very easily, yeah. Um, we're, we're coming up on time. If folks want to get in contact with you or learn more about what you're doing, what, what, where do they go for that information? Um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm Ian, at Ian Castle on Twitter. Um, you can, if you're interested in microcap investing, learning more about microcaps, you can go to microcapclub.com. Um, it's a great resource. It's where I am uh, every day if you're looking to find um, some of these books that I was telling you about. We wrote a couple of them. We're writing another one. We have a whole community around, you know, really just trying to find these great leaders. Um, that's at intelligentfanatics.com. Um, and, you know, the investment strategy that I just launched um, is, is if.capital is the website for that. And that's Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management. Uh, I can attest to the quality of your Twitter account. It's got uh, multiple tens of thousands of rabid fans and i'm i'm happy to be one of them uh ian castle thank you very much thanks toby thanks for having me on it's been a lot of fun my pleasure